friends, you are listening to Real Talk with Rachel, and I'm your host, Rachel Gilbert. I am a therapist on mission to bridge the gap between mental and emotional health and faith. This show is a safe and often fun space with real conversations to help you live free and pursue your God-given dreams. Remember, these episodes are meant to be educational, not a replacement for your own therapist. You can tune in on Mondays for short talk therapy episodes, always 15 minutes or less. And on Wednesdays, we sprinkle in guest interviews with people that I feel have a story that can bring you hope, healing, inspiration, or just a good laugh. Be sure you stick around until the end of the show for a short segment where I share counselor-approved strategies to take this Real Talk episode and make it relevant in your everyday life through simple action steps. In today's episode, we are chatting with Dominic Dunn about his new book, Your Longing Has a Name. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen the picture I shared in my stories where both of us had animal emojis on at the end of this interview. So let's just say that we talked about a deep subject, but we had a blast while doing it. Let me share with you a little about him. Dominic Dunn is founder of Pursuing Faith and author of When Faith Fails. With a master's in theology from the University of Oxford, he has served as a pastor in Portland, Oregon, North Carolina, and Hawaii. Dominic has also taught English for companies in Europe, lectured in theology and history at various Christian colleges, worked as a radio DJ, and lived as a missionary. Please help me welcome him to the show. Well, hello, Dominic. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So good to be on the show with you. Yeah. Okay. We've got lots to chat about today. One of my fun first questions that I like to ask all my guests is what is something random or fun about fun fact about you that I did not just read in your professional bio? Okay. <laughs> well, um, a fun fact about me, I uh, lived in the jungles of Vanuatu for about three years where I uh, had to learn this language called Bislama, which is kind of a, a, a cross between Pigeon English, uh, some French that's thrown in there, some local dialect. Uh, so I had to learn how to share Christianity and, and go through the Bible while while speaking this. And one fun fact was trying to understand the culture and making some huge mistakes along the way via their language. Um, remember one time when I was asked what my favorite place was in America. And I told our students, and they're all college age, I, I told them that it was Disneyland. And I had to explain Disneyland in their language. Um, and when I got to the part of Mickey Mouse, um, they were already confused because I'm talking about the castle. And in their language, it translates as a big hut. Um, I talk about Mickey Mouse, but there's no word for mouse. So I had to use the word rat. Um, so I said there was a a big rat in California named Mickey, and they were so confused. Um, in fact, one of the students, he, he told me, he said, you should never go to Disneyland. It is an evil place. And Mickey the rat, he said, is a witch doctor. <laughs> so I made some huge uh, cultural mistakes along the way and uh, learned some valuable lessons as well in the process. How long ago was that? Yeah, that was, wow. Uh, I want to say 20 years ago or so. Um, yeah, it was when I was in my early 20s and uh, moved to Vanuatu and just start teaching the Bible, learning the language, learning from the culture, as I shared, 
and you know lo- no electricity no running water and you know a- after three years uh looked like i'd been in the jungle um if you've seen castaway i, I probably had my version of wilson so Okay, we can't gloss over that. No electricity, <laughs> no running water. I think sometimes we hear those kinds of things and we go, oh, that's cool. But hold on. I, we can barely last a day without that over here. So how did that shape who you are even today, 20 years later, having lived that kind of lifestyle and then now living here? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like God just always has us on this trajectory of taking risks, uh, saying yes when he tells us to go. And that whole story of how I went to Vanuatu, I actually share in my first book, it came about through a time of prayer and journaling and God putting this country on my heart. And a few days later being invited out of the blue to go there as a teacher and saying yes. And I, w- I would say it shaped me in a, in a pretty substantial way. Um, at first it was really hard because calling oftentimes, you know, it involves risk. Uh, involves pain. It involves uh, heartache even. Um, But it's in that process that our faith grows. And so for me, it was a time of really hearing from the Lord, Um, no distractions, right? Every night the students would gather around a fire and they called that time talking story. Uh, And it was so beautiful because every single night a different student would share their story. They'd talk about something they'd seen or an experience they had. And that's how the whole Disneyland thing came about because after a few months that I'd been there, they said, okay, you tell us a story. What's your favorite place to go to? And and I just look at our culture now. We're so distracted. Um, Story for us is what we do on Instagram. Um, But in that culture, it's like real life people and hearing from others and those encounters, those face-to-face encounters. And, you know, it's Blaise Pascal who said that the, the great problem of our age, and he wrote this hundreds of years ago, the great problem of our age is, he said, quote, man's inability to sit in a room alone. <laughs> and that was so prophetic because I think where we're at now is very distracted. Our brains have been Googled. Um, it's hard for us to to focus even. And, and it's hard for us to really absorb the beauty and wonder of, of relationship and connection with others. I agree. I actually really like what you just said about the story piece. Uh, the only stories we do is on Instagram. I'm like, that's funny slash sad, like true. Yeah. You know, I'm like, yeah, that is a real thing. All right. I want to make sure I give you a chance to talk about your first book. I'll do that at the end because I know once okay. we talk about this second book, the listeners are going to want to know more because both of these two topics are just extremely near and dear to my heart. Before we hit record, I was telling you, I've just been encountering a lot of people lately who are just kind of wrestling with their faith, wrestling with what they think they believe. And um, whenever I saw this book that I'm, I'm holding your newest book in my hands right now, the title alone struck a chord in my spirit, and it was like, yep, there it is. And it's, your longing has a name. Longing, that word longing, like that we mm-hmm. all have this longing within us. And it says, come alive to the story that you were made for. So I I want to hear your heart behind this book before we start diving into some of the questions that I have for you. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a book about faith, how our faith can grow and how our soul can flourish. 
um, flourishing is actually over the last few months, it's entering more and more uh, popular discourse. Uh, I think we have Aristotle to thank for that because we're kind of adopting a Greek view of what flourishing is, which is much more about external circumstances. If we get a pay raise or the relationship is good or we have followers on, on social media, then we say we're flourishing or a business has profits and it's flourishing. But when you look at scripture, we see a radically subversive countercultural view of what flourishing is all about. And it has to do with participation in the life of God. And so I wrote this book because, A, um, I went through a season where my own soul felt like it wasn't flourishing. And, and I'm, I'm looking at scripture and I'm looking at the words of Jesus and how he talked about, how he promised that. If we believe in him out of our soul, we'll gush forth torrents of living water or Psalm chapter one, where it talks about the tree that's planted by the rivers of water. And, and I'm seeing this, this beautiful analogy in scripture, but it's also a dichotomy because you compare that to our own life. And, and it feels like a contradiction. It feels like I'm, I'm not flourishing. So that set me on a journey to explore the health of the soul, to explore what is flourishing. And the second part was more pastoral, um, looking at culture, seeing where we're at in this moment. And something is happening over the last few years where even though we're, we have comforts and even though we're an extremely wealthy nation, there's something happening at a soul level uh, that, that is deeply, deeply broken. In, in fact, in, in the opening chapter of the book, I talk about this New York Times article that came out a few months ago. And, and they did a whole write-up on this. And they used the word languishing to describe our emotional state collectively. We're, we're languishing. And languishing, of course, it's, it's actually a beautiful word. Uh, but it, it speaks of this unshakable sense where you're, you're striving or you're just surviving instead of thriving. Um, it, languishing is that feeling of lostness. And, and as I begin to think about that, I'm like, yeah, that is true. We are in this state of languishing for a myriad of reasons. We could talk about that if you want to. But as I, as I consider this word languishing, it's actually, when you look at the etymology of it, deeply, deeply connected to the concept, to the idea of longing. And here, I believe, is this beautiful apologetic moment where souls are hurting, lives are screaming out for truth and meaning and purpose. People have a longing, and we as followers of Jesus have an opportunity to speak into those longings, to help others identify those longings, which I think is the first step on the roadmap towards a soul that can flourish again. Okay, I'm already learning so much here. I would love to know, especially for the listeners who might be going, well, what is, how would you define soul? Just period, like what is it to uh, you? Yeah, that, that is such a good question. Um, because it, it is uh, a word that we use uh, often flippantly. I think culturally we have all different kinds of interpretations for what the soul is. Uh, we can use the word soul as in relationship. Like we could say someone is my soulmate or a certain genre of music. You know, I like jazz or hip hop or soul, or he's the heart and soul of the NFL team or whatever, you know, uh, in and out is my soul food. Um, we're using all these different scattered and enigmatic ways. 
or I think probably the most common cultural perception of soul is, well, if you saw that movie last year, remember the Pixar film soul mm-hmm. and it was built on a premise of these two dimensional neon beings. Um, but they leave their earthly physical existence to this strange platonic. It's very platonic, that movie, by the way, uh, existence that's, you know, not quite real, but in some sense is. And, and that's how people interpret soul now. It's like, well, you know, soul is what lives on if your physical body dies, you know, unless they're an atheist or naturalist and they'd say you just die, period, and you don't have a soul. But in the Bible, what, what you see when, when you begin to explore the word soul, it's this beautiful Hebrew word, uh, nefesh. And nefesh, it speaks of the entirety of your being that longs for God. So I think, for example, of Psalm 63, where David said, oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My nefesh, my soul longs for you. My my nefesh thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, our soul is that that dimension of, of our being, really the entirety of our being that yearns for the presence of God. And so to have a soul that is flourishing, really the whole premise of the book is built on this idea of intimacy with God, um, being close to him. In, in fact, in the book of Genesis, the first time you see the word nefesh or soul, it says that God breathed into Adam and he became a living nefesh, a living soul. And that word living, by the way, is so beautiful. Um, it's in, in the original language in the ancient world, it spoke of a plant, a flower that's blossoming and thriving, beautiful, uh, alive. And, and that was how God intended humanity to be, to be blossoming and alive and thriving and flourishing. Now, sin messed that all up, of course. But really, the, the call of the spirit is to lead us closer and closer into that thriving, flourishing life. And that comes through just like Adam God breathed on him. It's this language of closeness and intimacy, because if you're close enough to to receive someone's breath on your face, you're pretty close to that person, right? You're either married or about to be. Um, So it says God breathed on Adam. There's this closeness. There's this intimacy there that that is what our soul is yearning for. So yes, at one level, we're languishing culturally, but what lies beneath the languishing is a deep, deep resonant longing. My daddy is a preacher and growing up he would I heard him say multiple times there's a hole in your soul only God can fill. Yeah. I don't think that any of us would argue those of us who are believers anyhow would argue that we want that. Like yes, Lord, I want you to breathe on me. I want you to fill me. Yet, how is it then that as believers we can still find ourselves my soul going, my soul's weary, you know, like I can't, yeah. I'm, I'm feel weary. So how do we, then when we feel like, yeah, my, I'm not okay. And my soul, mm-hmm. I, it is not well with my soul currently right now. How do we pivot to turn back and let him fill us in that way or breathe on us? That, as you said, that is the million dollar question, right? It's mm-hmm. the same question that David asked in the book of Psalms, Psalm 23, when he said, Lord, you're my shepherd. And, and he begins to describe how God would restore his nefesh, restore his soul. And nefesh, an interesting side note, is related to this other Hebrew word, nefesh. And nefesh means to take a deep breath. Mm. And so I, I, I think healing begins at an emotional level, psychological level, 
uh, spiritual level, physical level, even uh, through the act of, okay, I'm taking a deep breath. Sometimes it's a literal breath just to slow ourselves down. Other times it's allowing others, you know, to, to speak into our life and address those issues of brokenness, uh, those things that need need to be healed that maybe we don't identify or understand how to fix. Um, other times it's just learning how to get more rest. But something happens in the presence of God where our soul can begin to breathe again. In fact, in Psalm 23, where it says, he restores my soul. Did you know it's literally translated as he will renew my breath again. <laughs> and I love that because, and this is why I love the Psalms actually, because they, they give voice to our languishing. They, they, they give voice to our lostness, to our weariness. And of course, it's the, the invitation of Jesus to come to him when we're weak and weary and heavy laden, which so many of us are right now, after the last few years especially. And he promises us rest for our soul, for our nefesh. How is Jesus's rest for our soul different than what we try to do just, you know, that even our world, our culture will tell us to rest. How do those two differ? Yeah. Well, well, that's, that's a really, really interesting question. Culture oftentimes will say what you need is a longer vacation or you need more time, you know, binging on Netflix or whatever. But the, the rest that Jesus offers, it's not necessarily you know, that you need more time. Now, maybe you do. Maybe, maybe we do need time away and absolutely hit the reset button, get off the treadmill. Um, sometimes just chillaxing on, on the couch, watching a good movie. Absolutely, all that's important. Um, but the rest that Jesus is offering us is a deeper soul kind of rest. And it's difficult, I think, to, as you alluded to, it's difficult to enter into that rest because there are so many things that are distracting us right now. Um, our, our souls are so used to all the noise, the stimuli, the meetings, the endless access, the texts, emails, Netflix, whatever, the pausing just to be with God, to breathe again, feels like torture. In fact, I came across this article that I mentioned in the book, uh, how in 2015, I think it was, uh, Microsoft, they discovered, and that number is actually going down too, that the average attention span has dropped to seven or eight seconds. It's probably seven now. Eight seconds, which is the ability for us just to focus on one thing, which it's super depressing because fish have an attention span of nine seconds. Uh, so, you know, we make Dory look like a genius. Um, and I think what God is calling us back to in this moment is to be the kind of people who embody a deep soul kind of rest, what what the Old Testament calls shalom, right, or, or peace. Um, that's what people are yearning for, for longing for. Uh, in an age in a time of so much conflict and agitation and uh, distraction to be the kind of people who, even though around us may be chaos, inwardly we've learned the art of being still and knowing that he is God. Yeah, you know, just this week I had kind of a cool experience slash uh, conviction and I, we just have a really busy week this week, of course, of lots of different things and meetings and whatnot. And I remember at the very beginning of my week on Monday, I was had the thought as I was driving to work, oh, I can I can make it till Sunday and then I'll have rest. Mm. And, I, and immediately I felt like the Lord said, why do you have to wait till Sunday? Like you don't need all, like it doesn't always, yes, you have a set, a set aside day for Sabbath, of course, but 
he has just been speaking to me all week about those little 10 seconds instead of picking up my phone, like, like you said, stopping and taking some deep breaths or just sitting in silence. Like he's just been showing me how to find that rest for my soul in my week (laughs) rather Mm. than wait. Why do I have to wait till Sunday for rest? Like what? No, it doesn't always have to be one big, huge day. Well, anyway, so I just had to share that because I was like, yeah, he just convicted me about that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, it was about a year ago, almost exactly. Uh, when my wife, she, she had a lung collapse and kind of long story short, after um, several weeks in the hospital and several surgeries, they ended up doing this one crazy surgery where they basically scrape up uh, the inside of your chest and stick your collapsed lung against the wall to try and make it heal. But when, when all that was done, incredibly painful, every breath um, was just torture for her for a, a good chunk of time. And the, the doctor said something that kind of stuck with me. He said, he gave her this little machine. He said, I want you to breathe into this. He said, the deeper you breathe, the more you will heal. And we live in a moment where it feels like our soul, right, is, is gasping for air. And I think the invitation of the spirit is, hey, the deeper you breathe, the more you'll heal. You need to breathe in the presence of God now more than ever. Oh, that's good. The deeper you breathe, the more you will heal. Needed to that was worthy of repeating. All right. I want to jump to you actually talk in the book about, and this is scary. I've done one of these little tests on myself before. The number of times that we pick up our phone <laughs> or that mm-hmm. we swipe or that we click. Let we have to talk a little bit about technology and how it does mm-hmm. hinder us in this way of really doing the deep breaths <laughs> and finding that, that healing and that rest for our soul. Uh, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. Um, the stats on this are absolutely terrifying. And it's something that if you have an iPhone, you're reminded of every Sunday, <laughs> you, you know, you get that little alert, like you spent X amount. And it's always shocking to me. I'm like, how is that even possible? And it's especially distressing when you see it's 45% more than last week or whatever. But Americans on average, according to recent stats, spend more than four hours every day looking at their phone. Half that time is browsing social media. Almost an hour is texting. We pick up our phone, I think it's like 63 times per day. And then we tap. So that doesn't include what we tap and swipe and click over 2,600 times a day. Now, the problem with that, and there's, there's been a ton of research on this. I think of the cognitive psychologist, Daniel Levton, he, he wrote on this specifically. And he talks about how the processing capacity of the conscious mind uh, is only estimated to be about 120 bits per second, kind of computer speak there. So when you have a conversation with someone like this conversation, it takes up about 60 bits per second. And unless you're a guy and it's probably 120 because it's like guys have a hard time multitasking. Um, But at most what you can do is kind of focus on, you know, two things before your brain's like, ah, I can't handle it anymore. And so what technology is doing is, is causing us to experience neural overload. Every online meeting we participate in, it's why, by the way, they talk about Zoom fatigue, because you see all of these faces on the, on the screen. It's like your brain's just trying to process all these conversations, and it's, it's, it's too much. And so as our brains are being buried by this information, uh, our lives are actually struggling to catch up. And so this is where uh, we need to 
build into our lives spiritual practices like, oh, there's actually an airplane mode on my iPhone. It's amazing how that can be a spiritual practice. Just saying, you know, I'm going to be with my family tonight and I don't need to have that on. Um, learning the art of saying I'm taking these hours per week or day per week where I'm not going to be writing email or even checking email for that matter or getting up in the middle of the night and checking email, you know, that can be a huge distraction. That actually, you know, confession hour, but just recently it's up in the middle. I couldn't sleep very well. I'm looking at email and something comes in that was urgent. And so I'm like responding to it, you know, at 2 a.m. And then by that point, my brain's just going a million miles an hour. And it was like impossible to get back to sleep. So we weren't meant, we were meant for a garden, right? We were meant for Eden. That's what our soul longs for intimacy with God, walking with God in the cool of the day. And so we need to learn the art of putting these boundaries and barriers in place so that our soul can heal. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up about email because I have done different times of the year. I'll do social media fast or whatever. And so sometimes I'll think, oh, good. If I delete Instagram off my phone, then I shouldn't be on my phone as much. Well, guess what? A new app will take its place. Uh, You know, Voxer or something, (laughs) something takes the place. And even email is a big one. And I remember one time I was supposed to be fasting or like, you know, putting some boundaries in place on my phone. And I just overrode it and I got in and started checking my email. And immediately I felt the Lord say, what are you looking for here? And I honestly, uh, that question just made me pause and go, I was I was longing for connection. Like I was longing wow. for something, but I was looking for it in an inbox and it's not there, mm-hmm. you know? And so for me, like when I just will stop and get honest with myself and go, hold on, let's just put the pause button on and really go when I'm jumping into Instagram or when I'm seeing if somebody's texted me or whatever the thing might be, what is it that I'm looking for? Am I really supposed to be here? Because of course there's a time and a place to be in those spaces. But then there's also a lot of times where I my soul is, is talking to me saying, feed me, yeah. like go get fed from the only place that can actually nourish you and help you flourish. Mm-hmm but I don't always go there. So let's talk for a second about a flourishing soul. I love to leave my listeners with some practical tips. Um, And so what would you say? I know you talk about seven different virtues, right? For flourishing Mm -hmm. soul. So what do you want to say? I know you probably can't unpack all seven right now, but you could maybe do one or two and, you know, do something. Uh, Absolutely. So this was the big like thing that really transformed my life. Uh, in a season, and I, I talk about it in chapter one, like what, what was contributing to the chaos of the season, death of family members and, you know, the medical thing with my wife and all these things that were going on. And I'm looking for ways like, okay, practically, what does it mean to experience what Jesus called the abundant life? What does it mean to be the tree planted by the rivers of living water? How can my soul like Adam breathe again? And I came across this passage in second Peter chapter one, and and this becomes kind of the guiding theme, uh, the guiding text for, for the book where Peter as an old man, he begins to talk about the flourishing life. He begins to use language about, you know, make your calling sure. And the word calling uh, is this image in the ancient world of a peasant being invited to a lavish feast. Uh, He's inviting us, you know, into this life of abundance the Lord has chosen us. But it's not the abundance that the the world promises uh, of, you know, material success or whatever, necessarily. It's an abundance inwardly. In fact, when Peter wrote 2 Peter 1, 
um, he was in prison. <laughs> there was a crazy madman named Nero who was Caesar who's trying to kill him. So the world would not say he was flourishing at that point, but his soul was. And there he begins to unpack these seven beautiful virtues. Um, I, I use the word gifts. Um, they are virtues, absolutely. But sometimes we we take on board kind of a, a Greek view of uh, an ancient Greek view of what the virtues are, which has to do with striving and trying, you know, through our own efforts and energy to obtain certain things that are just outside our grasp. Whereas I think the life of the spirit is God has given us these things and he calls us to participate in them. And so these seven gifts are goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And so we walk through these seven things and we talk about how they contribute to a, a soul that flourishes. And it's written from the from the pen of the man, Peter, who knew what it was like to burn out. I mean, talk about a burnout, right? He, standing by an enemy's fire, denying Jesus, goes and weeps bitterly. And then Jesus catches up with him and begins to restore him. Then his soul you know, begins to flourish. His soul begins to come alive again. And he writes to us these beautiful gifts, invites us into the life of the spirit. And so I talk about those and what it means for our lives today, what it means for culture, uh, what it means for our trajectory and how it can transform us from the inside out. Which I love that you called it gifts because I was recently talking with somebody else about this topic of the gifts that he's given us. And so what would you say, of those seven that you just mentioned for you right now would be one mm-hmm. that is a gift that you're, you're going, you know what? I, this is one that is really helping me in this season. Yeah. So in, in one, well, I, I think the most important one is goodness and and I unpack how, what that meant for Peter and, and it speaks of intimacy with God. So that's an un, ongoing gift for me, just taking time to be in the presence of the Lord. But um, w- one of them I unpack is, um, I talk about, you know, self-control and uh, confronting our shadow side. And some of these ideas, um, you know, I see in the life of Peter, uh, some through my own reading and research, I think of Parker Palmer, who's written a little bit on this. And he, he talks about how in our life, there can sometimes be a disconnect between our soul and our role, how we can become incredibly good at putting up walls, putting up armor, putting up the mask uh, in order to please a certain crowd or to defend ourselves, to uh, fend off hurt or wounds or trauma. And in time, though, what happens is our soul inwardly uh, begins to suffocate because our role and our soul aren't synchronized. And I think part of the life of the spirit, and this is something for me recently, I just keep chewing on, is learning the art of living without walls. And that takes a lot of work (laughs) Um, to confront that which is maybe hindering us from living out of our calling, what God is actually asking us to do. Uh, It means confronting some of those areas of fear. I mean, coming face to face with some issues in our past, it it may mean, you know, guidance and counseling and people who can speak uh, truth and wisdom into us. But I think in time, those walls that we construct in life can begin to come down piece by piece so that there can be a, a synchronicity between our soul and what God is wanting to do in us and through us. Well, as the host of Real Talk with Rachel, I yes and amen, the living without walls, you know, because that's my heart for 
my ministry is to help women live, you know, real and um, let those walls down. But here's the interesting thing that I always love about God slash, you know, want to roll my eyes about is when he calls us to a certain area, he calls us to be the ones who do it first. And so I've had yes. to learn how to <laughs> kick down my walls. Like I, Absolutely. every time I think I've, I've broken through more walls, there's another wall and I'm going, Oh man. Mm. And I'm like, Lord, could we just leave this one wall up? That would just be great. You know, like I think this wall, it's okay. Right. It's, it's a, right. it's a load bearing wall. We can't knock it down, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, him and I will wrestle back and forth with it. And I'm like, okay, fine. You can, you can knock down the wall and it's just cool though the more freedom that i am willing to go there and do then it it empowers other people to do the same and so thank you for bringing that topic up because that that gets me excited (laughs) oh that's i love how you just put that um because it reminds me of remember that mystic uh, her name was saint Teresa of avila and she she said almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of (laughs) self-knowledge so it's when we begin to address those gritty raw areas in our life or things that we think, ah, you know, it's a low bearing wall that can stay. Those are the areas where Kierkegaard, the philosopher, he he talked about this concept of freedom and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is wholeness, right? Holiness is wholeness and there's flourishing there. Yeah. Um, I know we're almost out of time, but I do have to, you, since you mentioned it, the shadow side, do you want to say anything more about that? Cause I'm sure the listener's ears might've perked up and said, what's that? I would like to know more. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. So the the shadow side essentially is a term for, for sin, right? It's it's the part of us um, that, that is broken, that, that needs to be addressed and made whole and repented of. Um, but one of the things I, I bring out in that chapter is how a shadow always points to a substance, right? The shadow, uh, you step outside and the reason it's there is because there's a reality that it's pointing to. Um, Plato talked about this actually in his whole analogy of the cave. And when we begin to see the shadow parts of our life, the broken areas of our life, and, and I talk about, by the way, how the seven virtues or gifts contrast with what the church in the first few centuries called the seven deadly sins. And it's so fascinating how they line up together. But when we begin to see those areas of sin in our life, There's also a deeper question of not just, oh, I need to confess that sin, but it's why do I struggle with that sin to begin with? What is it in that thing, that relationship, that propensity, that tendency, that pull, that yearning? Why is that there? And and you start to do that kind of work. What is the substance that the shadow is pointing to? That's incredibly hard work, uh, but it's incredibly liberating (laughs) as well. It is. And it gets to the root. Like, I mean, seriously, I'm a why girl. I'm, I am all about the whys. Cause like you said, there's always a reason lying beneath, you know, if we just want to try to adjust the behavior constantly, that gets exhausting Mm -hmm. and it's not lasting. But when you'll jump down a bit deeper and go, okay, why, why is this a common thing? Let's look at the, what's lying underneath this. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Mm -hmm. you think of that whole concept of self-control when, when Peter says, add this gift to your face, self-control, the way that in ministry, we, we tend to interpret that, or, you, you know, we've all heard a million sermons like this is self-control is, you know, you've just got to walk away from resist, uh, burn, axe, throw away, whatever, that thing that's, that's hurting or harming you. And absolutely that's part of it, but there's deeper work to be done than that because 
There's something in our soul. And again, it comes back to this idea of languishing. Why do we languish in this sin? Why do we languish in this shadow? Deeper than that is always a longing. So how do we uncover that? How do we address the deeper longings that that shadow is pointing to? And how, and this is where I get into kind of a rabbinic understanding of the shadow self, how can those shadows be redeemed? Mm. And uh, to me, that was just, uh, probably don't have time to go there now, but it's actually a really beautiful concept, um, how the shadow self can actually be once redeemed, once confessed, once brought into the light, can be a force for good and healing in the world. Mm, That's powerful. Okay, you're an excellent teacher. Uh, Are you a professor? Did I read that? Yeah, yeah. So um, currently, no, um, but I I was a professor at George Fox University for a while. Okay. Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's something I I love the academic space. Yeah, I just really appreciate how you don't just bring opinion in. Opinions are fine, but you bring in uh, some stuff to back it up. And so I'm sure the listeners, I had to bring that up because I'm noticing it. So I would guess the listeners are just curious. I know I told you in the beginning, um, I want you to at least tell the listeners what your first book is, because Mm -hmm. so that way, if it piques their interest, they can get both books (laughs) from you. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. So while this new book is about faith and flourishing, the first book is a lot darker. Uh, speaking of shadows, um, the, the title is darker. It's called When Faith Fails. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago, and it's about doubt and deconstruction. And what do we do when we or someone we know is wrestling with their faith or leaving their faith? And how do we help walk them through that season? The, the Bible says in Jude 22, it says, show mercy to those who doubt. And to me, that that's a game changer, too, because so often our theology of doubt is so, so out of place. And it doesn't show a lot of mercy to people who are in a place of deep trauma, honestly, and hurt. Uh, show mercy means to, the word mercy means to repair a broken bone. <laughs> and so our calling is to be those, like a physician would care for someone who just broke a bone, to be that presence, that faithful presence in someone's life to help walk them through that. So in the book, I talk about that. I share my own story, uh, my own season where uh, I went through a time of deconstruction and doubt and then reconstruction and what that looks like. I I talk about the difference between doubt and unbelief. There's a huge difference there uh, between someone who's just honestly doubting and someone who is cynically deconstructing and how we can respond to both of those spaces as well. And then the final part of the book is really practical where I offer some uh, things that I've learned along the way that, that I found to be helpful in, in walking through those seasons towards a deeper flourishing faith. Well, if they want to get a copy of either of your books or connect to you more, where's the best place they can do that? Yeah, so we have a website. Uh, it's uh, pursuingfaith.org. Um, I'm on Instagram a lot, uh, Dominic Dones. We give social media um, and uh, Facebook a little. Same thing, Dominic Doan. Yeah, the books are available, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Uh, they're also on our website, Pursuing Faith. Yeah. Well, before we go, do you have just a final word of encouragement to the person who tuned in today and totally feels that weariness in their soul? Yeah, absolutely. Um you're not alone. <laughs> there are so many people who are in that space, but the invitation of the spirit even now uh, and the invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples who were languishing is, is to find rest 
for their souls. And it is there. It is available. That verse, again, be still and know that I am God. And this idea of stillness actually means release. Uh, what, whatever you need to release right now, whatever you're holding on to, the angst, the fear, the uncertainty, the pain, the heartache, uh, release it, give it to the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to feel those things still. It's a daily choice. Sometimes it's a moment-by-moment moment choice. But as you give him your cares and your burdens, you'll, you'll find his healing presence begin to restore and renew you. Amen, and I receive that too. Well, Dominic, thank you again for taking time to come on today. I'm thrilled to introduce you to the listeners and for them to get their hands on your books. Oh, thank you so much. So good to talk to you. It is time for Let's Get Real Practical. This is the part of the show where we take the topic discussed with today's guest and we get into some practical steps you can implement into your life right now. I don't always do this in this section, but I want to share a resource with you. I personally love it, and I think everybody needs to own one. It is called the Care and Counsel Bible. So yes, it's a Bible, but it infuses insights from licensed therapists throughout the Bible. So there's different articles, a lot of them, of course, on mental health, but all kinds of things throughout. And one section that they have is called Soul Care. And these are really short sections. They're just a few sentences long. And I was actually drawn to one for us today that I'm going to read from this Counsel and Care Bible, or Care and Counsel Bible is how it's listed on the official title. And this section is called Return. So I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to talk about it and how it applies to today's episode. So this one was found in 2 Chronicles 30. And if you want to go read 2 Chronicles for a little background, you're more than welcome to 2 Chronicles 30. But here's the soul note that they had on the side in the topic of return or restoration. Here's what it says. The northern tribes had broken away from Judah, and the line of Davidic kings set up a system of idolatry. When Hezekiah led the southern kingdom into a spiritual revival, he wrote to the northern tribes and appealed to them to return to the temple in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. He reminded them that God is gracious and merciful to all who will return to him. In response, some mocked God, but many humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. God promises restoration for those who will return to him. My friends, we talked today with our guest all about the soul, and here's how I feel like that word return came up is this, restore. I know so many of us have some area of our soul that just feels a little off, maybe a little lost, and I'm not talking about salvation here necessarily. I'm talking just about when something doesn't feel okay in your spirit and we need it to be restored and having an area of our lives and of our souls restored is as simple as returning to Jesus in this area. And so here's the question I just want to leave you with today. In what area of your life do you need to return to the Lord so he can refill you? Because, see, we can try all the self-care tactics we want, 
We can do all the spa days. We can unplug from our phone all we want. And don't get me wrong, I love all those things. I love spa days. I love unplugging from my phone. I love those self-care things. But there's nothing that will fill our soul. Just like I said today in the interview, that, that saying my dad said all the time, there is a hole in your soul only God can fill. So return to him today. And returning looks like just turning towards him, going, Lord, I can't do this in my own strength. I'm missing something in my life, and it's you. So let me pray over us today. Father, I thank you so very much that you created us, mind, soul, body, and spirit, and none of those are greater than the other. They are all just one working unit, Lord. We thank you, Father. We thank you for our soul. We thank you that you care about our soul. And God, I just pray right now for every single listener sitting under the sound of my voice who maybe they say, yeah, I'm not okay. We just meet them where they're at. We fill that hole in their soul. We return to you, Father, our only source of strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, that's it for today. Hey, be sure you tune in next Monday morning as we always continue these talk therapy series. I pray these Real Talk episodes brought you one step closer to living free and pursuing your God-given dreams. I'll see you back here next time on Real Talk with Rachel.